welcome to the On Humans podcast. This is your host, Ilari Mackel. Today's episode explores the boundaries of justified beliefs. My guest is Michael Shermer, a historian of science and a best-selling author, perhaps best known nowadays as the host of The Michael Shermer Show, one of those standard stops for authors to talk about their new science books in. Dr. Shermer and I start by discussing his new book, Conspiracy, published today on the same day as the episode on the 25th of October. Whether absurd claims like the Earth being flat or politically significant claims like Hillary Clinton running a pedophile ring, conspiracy theories have a way of seducing many minds. This is not a coincidence. Indeed, there is plenty of psychology explaining why and how believing in conspiracy theories can make people feel good. Shemra and I discuss these reasons and ask, in the end, how to have successful discussions with people who stubbornly believe in such theories. All of this does raise a question, though. What if we are both wrong? What if it is the conspiracists who have the truth? How would we know? Beyond just the issue of conspiracy theories, we embark on a wider exploration on the promise and the danger of skepticism and the very limits of the territory in which we should use science as our guide. Here, we end up discussing Shermer's optimism about the role that science can play in society at large, even in guiding us to moral progress, a view best articulated in his book, The Moral Arc. As always, the show notes include a full list of names, technical terms, and works cited in this conversation. I hope that you enjoy the discussion. I bring to you Michael Shermer. Dr. Michael Shermer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about your upcoming book, Conspiracy. Are conspiracy theories on the rise? Oh, <clears throat> well, there's always been conspiracy theories. You know, I quote studies in the book on letters to the New York Times going back a century of what readers were concerned about, about related to conspiracies. And there's a lot. And there does seem to pick up some momentum in, say, post-World War II, but it, it really is more involved with technology uh, of spreading information. So, for example, the example I use in the book is, you know, in the 1960s, post-Kennedy assassination, Yes, most of the assassination buffs were just printing newsletters in their basement on little mi mimeograph machines and, you know, distributing by U.S. postal mail. And you can only reach a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand people, or you have a conference at a hotel room, you have a few dozen people or a few hundred people. It's just nothing. You know, so what the internet has done is allowed uh, amateur sleuths who are thinking that they may have discovered a conspiracy to reach millions of people, uh, really, it, overnight. Yeah, I guess one of the things that is also of interest is, at least according to you, what has changed is the attitude of the conspiracy theories. Uh, you write, quote, In my correspondence with conspiracists over the years, they routinely send me reams of documents, articles, books and papers, as well as links to websites, documentary films and demonstrations, all in hopes of convincing me through reason and empiricism that they are right to be constructively conspiratorial. The new conspiracists who have emerged since 2016 don't even bother to try, unquote. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what's happened? Well, there, that's mostly Trump. You know, he just, uh, he's the conspiracy theory without the theory. There's just, there's no evidence presented, you know, rigged. It's a one word conspiracy theory, rigged, <laughs> you know, or, or lock her up or, you know, or, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, what people? Oh, a lot of people. Where? All over the place. You know, so no evidence is ever offered. It's just declared to be true. And so that's what I would call a tribal conspiracy theory. You know, it's just people adhere to it, not because they think the arguments are good, because there are no arguments, or that the evidence is solid. There's no evidence. It's just uh, declaring your tribal loyalty by agreeing that the election was rigged, say, 2020 election. And so, you know, do people really believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump? Some do. Maybe Trump even does, but probably probably not. He just always says that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, There was a PBS Frontline episode two weeks ago on Trump. And they went all the way back to the Emmy Awards when The Amazing Race won the Emmy Award over Trump's TV show, The Apprentice. And you know, he's tweeting, rigged. It was stolen. It's all political. <laughs> you know, I'm a That's victim. Funny. 
the same language. So it's possible he doesn't believe any of this. But it's clear some some followers do. I mean, a lot of the people that marched on January 6th into the Capitol said, you know, when they asked, why'd you do that? Trump said to. He told us, get down there, be strong. You're going to lose your country. I didn't want to lose my country. You know, so I went down there, you know, so I think they believed it. That one's tribal. You know, this is, you know, he's our man. He's our leader, almost like a cult. You know, this is what we believe. And, uh, you know, if you ask him, well, where's your evidence? Oh, it, you know, it's everywhere. It's, it's obvious. Everybody knows it was rigged. You know, that's the extent of their arguments. I mean, even the flat earthers have arguments. You know, you can sit there and they'll regale you for hours with all the evidence they think they have for a flat earth or creationists or Holocaust deniers. You know, I wrote a book about Holocaust denial and I asked him, what are your best arguments? They sent me a list, long document, like 39 unanswered questions about the Holocaust. And these anomalies, these weird things we think indicate that the Holocaust didn't happen the way most historians think it did. And it's like, okay, well, that at least gives you something to work with. Like, okay, let's look into that to see if there's anything to these claims, which I did, all of them. And, uh, but again, the new conspiracism is they don't even bother. Do you think it might relate to the technology you mentioned earlier that, you know, in the 50s, you would be printing something in your basement and sending it forward. So there has to be some arguments in the, on the paper that you're printing versus when you have social media, you're, you're kind of able to create a certain community where just being part of that online community for enough many days or weeks or months, well, it just feels right now because all my friends are saying. Right. And, and on social media, you just click the one little button for like or give it a little heart or retweet it or whatever, you don't have to say anything, right? Well, let's focus on one conspiracy theory in particular, I guess the one that combines a lot of the, the issues we've been talking about is QAnon, which embodies a certain distrust to, to the state, combining it with, um, with ideas that I think quite directly were flowing to the January 6th insurrection. So, so just to get everybody on board, I've read a little bit, of course, about, about QAnon, but you certainly read more. So what would be your kind of quick intro? What is, the, what is QAnon? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's hard to pit down, actually, because it's, it's so <laughs> many different things. But generally, the idea is that, you know, inside the deep state, uh, you know, there's these forces uh, operating uh, and they're loosely associated. This started with Pizzagate with, you know, these Democrats, people like Hillary Clinton or Tom Hanks or Beyonce or any kind of celebrities were somehow involved with pedophilia and sacrificing children and drinking their blood for various reasons. And they were doing this in this pizzeria in Washington, D.C. And, you know, Trump was going to put a stop to this. He was going to rescue, you know, the, the victims. He was going to expose the perpetrators and, you know, other deep state related. The deep state is this idea that, you know, not completely untrue, that there's, you know, these kind of people involved in the State Department that we don't even know who they are doing things that we don't know what they're doing that are probably, you know, not moral or not legal. And, uh, you know, so you kind of wrap all that up. And then, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the satanic panic of the 80s and the anti-Semitism of decades before, like the protocols of the elders of Zion and the blood libel against the Jews. It goes back centuries. I think, again, this is in one of these conspiracy theories that I think most people don't really believe. You know, if you really believe there was a pedophile ring uh, being operated out of a pizzeria, you know, the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C., wouldn't you go there? Wouldn't you call the police and go, oh, my God, I've just discovered that there's this crime being committed? And somebody did go, right? Yeah, Edgar Welch went there with his gun, right? <laughs> he went there to break it up. That, that is what you would do if you really believed a crime was being committed and nobody was doing anything about it. Right. So at least he had the courage of his convictions and he wrote a note to his daughters. I'm going in. You know, I got to do this. I would I would defend you if I thought somebody was uh, perpetrating harm against you. I'm going to defend these children. Right. So he was quite surprised to go in there to discover there's no basement in the pizzeria where this <laughs> yes. was happening. So in the case and, you know, he went to jail and he apologized and he said, I really believed it. And I just, you know, had no idea it was all fake. And uh, so I, I think again, when some non-trivial percentage of people, particularly on the right, who say, yeah, I think there's something to the QAnon thing. Do they really believe that? If they did, they'd be like Ed Edgar Welch, they'd go there or they'd call the police or they'd you know, do something. But I think uh, when they say, I, I think there's something to it, they're more, they're more 
signaling their tribal commitment. Well, this is the kind of thing we Republicans think is going on. That's the kind of thing those Democrats would do, right? You know, they're they're not good people. Mm, mm. And even if you show me that, you know, Hillary is not running the pedophile ring out of a pizzeria, yeah, well, but I don't like her anyway for other reasons. It's the kind of thing she yeah. would do even if she's not doing that. She's doing something I don't like. I guess that would relate also to, you already mentioned tribal conspiracies, but you also talk about proxy conspiracies in the book, the idea being that, well, even if this is not correct, there is some deeper truth. Yes. And, uh, and you know, the deep truth is still there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that it's a proxy for something else, you know, a mythic or political psychological truth that people hold. Uh, my case study, and this is the OJ trial, you know, OJ was acquitted of murdering his ex-wife and her friend that based on a conspiracy theory that the LAPD planted the bloody glove and other evidence on his property and on his clothes and in his car. And, then, and the jury believed him. In a way, they believed it because, you know, the African-American community in Southern California knows historically that police did used to do things like that. Maybe they still do, but probably not. Mm -hmm. But it used to be, you know, there used to be a lot of racists. Racism was a problem. Maybe it still is. Uh, it certainly was, say, in the 50s and 60s. And uh, so, you know, there's kind of a, a memory of that. And so when you hear, you know, the police planted the bloody glove and so on, and here's this guy, Mark Furman of the police department, and he's kind of a racist asshole. So, yeah, that, that makes sense, right? Even though the evidence was overwhelming that he was guilty, nevertheless, the conspiracy theory was something of a proxy for these deeper truth that, you know, racism happens, mm, yes. police do plant evidence, and And then maybe a little bit of, you know, revenge against, you know, the Rodney King beating, which the white police got off, right? So we're going to let our guy off this time and tit for tat. So there was some of that as well. Well, let's go into the reasons. You have a, a great chapter on understanding the, the psychological reasons behind believing in such, uh, in such claims. We need to also return at some point to the point about, well, some conspiracies are true. I mean, we don't know <laughs> that none of these would be true. So let's return to that, but let's put it in brackets for a while and, and just talk about um, believe in conspiracies that we can with fairly high certainty say are not correct. And, I, and to this effect, if somebody is really doubting this and saying that, well, most of these conspiracies are correct, I think that's one of the best <laughs> anecdotes from the book is that 33% of Americans poll believe in 5G Dakota crash conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. That is not a real conspiracy theory. It was planted there by the poll, poll makers. Um, right. So you, have, right. you clearly have something else going on and people just making up semi-rational beliefs for things that, that some of us are too skeptical to take for granted. So why does this happen? You quote Alan Moore, who is the writer behind works like mm. V for Vendetta, who worked mm. a lot with conspiracy theories. And he said that what they bring is comfort. There's something comforting about this idea that, ah, okay, now I know why. <laughs> It's these guys. Right. Yeah, I don't know if comfort exactly. Well, satisfaction or, you know, kind of instead of dissonance, harmony of understanding how the world works. I guess the reason that believing in a conspiracy theory can, um, to some extent, bring this kind of feeling of aha um, is that it gives a sense of control. So uh, could you talk a little bit about the, the, the Whitson and Galinsky experiments? So this is an example of where we detect patterns where there are none, right? Right, illusory pattern detection. I call that patternicity. It happens more experimentally with people that are put in conditions of uncertainty, anxiety, you know, a, a loss of control or sense of loss of control. Yeah. And there, they, then people tend to see illusory patterns, patterns that are not really there. You know, just connect, connect the dots in your mind. And so, you know, so this is one of many, many factors, psychological factors that, you know, we think are involved in conspiracism and, and also power, you know, do you have power or don't you? Because that, you know, if you mm. do have power, it makes you feel like you're more in control. And so conspiracies theories often involve people that are out of power that think people in power are up to, right? So, uh, most of us who deal with big corporations, you know, you gotta, you gotta call, uh, you know, uh, some car company, to, to, you know, about a recall or something, you know, good luck finding somebody, you know, there's just, corporations are so big, so powerful and they have lobbyists and they're up to all kinds of no good things that, I have no power like that. Yeah. So I, I, the suspicion is like, okay, those guys over there, they're up to something. And, and that's, that's totally reasonable. 
Yeah, I guess the point of power is interesting. It reminded me of something that Ivan Krastev, who is a European scholar who studies Russian relations a lot, said in an interview with Ezra Klein earlier this year about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Mm. And he said that there was this false belief in Europe that after the Soviet collapse, Russia would follow the way of post-Second World War Germany. You know, they're going to they're gonna be happy liberals like, like us. And, um, and he said that, that that's not what happened. And instead, what happened was that there was this momentous event where, hey, we are one of the most or the most powerful place in the world, you know, the Soviet Union, mm. and suddenly mm-hmm. it doesn't exist. We didn't really like the communism necessarily, but what happened? You know, we lost the war without, without losing a war. And, and that that created a certain kind of conspiratorial attitude in Russia. Now, I, I'm not a, a scholar of Russia, Russian culture, not, nor am I Russian, so I can't really say if, if this is true, but this chime is true. So if I can read a quote, he, he said, one of the things that is absolutely amazing not about Putin, but about Russian political debate, is that they really adopted a very conspiratorial view of how the world functions. When you Mm. see 5,000 people on the street, you're not asking questions, why are they there? You're asking questions, who sent them? Who Mm. paid them? So this created a situation in which, in my view, our expectations that Russia is simply going to be the repetition of what happened to Germany after World War II was wrong. Or in a way... It was right, but it was not a repetition of what happened to Germany after World War II, but what happened to Germany after World War I. Mm. And in World War I, of course, so that was the end of quote, because after end, end of the World War I, what happened to Germany was something similar. They were winning the war. I mean, every German was reading the papers. Up, yeah, yeah, we're winning. We just got the Eastern Front and we're soon going to get the Western Front. And suddenly, they, what? We lost? What happened? <laughs> and hence right. comes the stab in the back theory. Oh, it must be right. someone. And, uh, and then soon it is the Jewish or the communists, and probably they're, they're actually the same in a lot of the propaganda posters. And I think it's both scary and fascinating to think that when you have these moments where people feel really powerless, in an ironic way, finding someone who's to blame brings comfort, brings a sense of power, which is quite ironic because you're feeling better by thinking that there's some evil folks out there manipulating the world. You know, that shouldn't make you feel better, but it does make a lot of people feel better, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the World War I case in Germany, um, the, you know, the, this popula- the citizens were not getting the full story of what was really going on in the war and how things had degraded quite a bit for the German military, running out of resources, the economy was being slammed pretty hard. And even though there weren't any, you know, massive battles that they lost to the French or the British or the Americans that, you know, were a clear turning point, the citizens just didn't know about the kind of the, the, the behind the scenes problems that the military faced. And so that, 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 again, just fuels conspiracism, lack of transparency. And I'm, cert- I'm sure that's the case with Russia, you know, as we see unfolding day to day now of, you know, that... Putin just declares, well, these are, there's Nazis in Ukraine. We're going to go there and rescue our citizens from the Nazis. Like, you know, and anything that the, you know, anything that bad that happens that they did, they just blame it on Ukrainians. So, you know, this is pretty standard stuff. You know, you just say the other guy did it and uh, it's a false flag operation. So one of the benefits of democracy is that you have more transparency, but not complete, right? There's, if you know, we just, again, Ed, Edward Snowden's in the news again, because Putin just granted him citizenship in Russia. And I don't know what you think about him or what anybody should think about him. But at the very least, thanks to him, we know things that the NSA was up to mm-hmm. that we didn't know that they were doing. And, you know, it's, there's certain things, national security secrets, I know that I don't really need to know. Most citizens don't need to know. That's okay. Um, But some things like, you know, monitoring or spying on your own citizens, monitoring their phone calls, not just the metadata, you know, it was more than that. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. actually listening to phone calls and reading people's mail without uh, a search warrant, you know, from a judge and so on, these warrantless um, you know, spying or surveillance, you know, this is something like what the Chinese state does and that's not supposed to happen here. So when we hear about this, it makes people lose trust in the institutions they should trust and that democracy needs citizens to trust. And, you know, so that's, that's, that's a problem. 
So what to do about it? I think there is a certain tension there because when we talked earlier about the, the patternicity, this mm. thing of seeing patterns where there are none. Well, in the experimental evidence that you discuss, one way to make people see more patterns that are not there is to make them feel uh, like they don't have control. And there's even this study, I think uh, it was a Princeton study, about how people's conspiratorial tendencies went up if they felt rejected by the group. They had to write some kind of a description about mm. themselves or something. And if the, if the group rejects it, that's when they start being conspiratorial. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, I think it poses a really deep dilemma because the more you kind of shout at conspiracy theorists and, and, and we get to the question of, well, what about if some of them are true? But there's, as we discussed, there's obviously some that are, are quite nonsensical, but, it, but the more we shout, hey, you know, this is just stupid. How can you believe that? Well, the more we are kind of triggering that very, aha, I'm feeling like I don't have power. I'm feeling like I'm out of control. There's this guy who pretends to be more powerful and more all-knowing than I am. I'm rejected by this group. And, and, and then up goes the conspiratorial tendencies in, in the psyche. So how do, how do you confront conspiracy theories without doing it in this way that, that pushes all the buttons that we know from the psychological science that will make people only more likely to find them and believe in them? Yeah, well, transparency is key, really critical. You know, just if you're in a, you work in a company and some people get in raises and others are not, some people make more money than other people and it's not clear why, then you're going to have a problem. People are going to be suspicious that something's going up. And there's a good reason for that because people do contrive and conspire to do things to other people in social groups of any kind. And so this kind of coalitional conspiracism in which we evolved in these small bands of hunter-gatherers in which, you know, there were conspiracies. People, you know, talk behind your back and they're, they're gossiping, they're whispering, they're, you know. It, and they're doing that even, they're doing it in the office, they're doing it today. <laughs> we don't have to go to hunter-gatherers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, right. You know, are they talking about me? And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, in my third, third leg in my three-legged stool of conspiracy the theory behind the theories is the uh, constructive conspiracism. Some uh, enough conspiracy theories turn out to be true that it probably pays to be a little paranoid. Sometimes they really are out, out to get you right. Um, in my section on, you know, constructive conspiracism and the negativity bias that we notice negative things more than positive things. This is one of them, you know, this kind of evolved suspicious of social coalitions in other groups or within our group against us. That's, that's normal. That, that does happen. We should be suspicious. We should be cautious. Sometimes they really are out, out to get you, right? And uh, I mean, I have long you know, chapters on you know, all the things that the U.S. government has been up to. You know, just look at Project you know, MKUltra in the 1950s of the CIA dosing U.S. citizens without their permission or even knowledge of, uh, with LSD you know, and other mind control drugs. Fearful that the Chinese and Russians and North Koreans were getting ahead of us on mind control technology, so we have to work on this. <laughs> Just like there's a missile gap, there's a psychic gap. It's it really in the same way, kind of closed the, the, the loop there with my first book, Why People Believe Weird Things. And I added a section on why smart people believe weird things. And in a way, it's, it's because they're really good at connecting the dots and rationalizing beliefs that they arrived at for non-smart reasons. But in a way, I, I, I also argue it, it's not a bug in the system. It's a feature, use the computer analogy, that is enough patterns are real. We should, we should connect the dots because sometimes it turns out it's true. You know, I mean, detecting and, you know, uh, that human activity causes climate change that pattern turned out to be true. Well, we should, you know, mm, this is what mm. science does. It seeks patterns and tests them, figure out, figures out which ones are true and which ones are not. So, you know, we're pattern seeking primates. We connect the dots. That's yeah. called learning. It's good that we do that. And I guess one of the things that we, we do is we seek for agents. We seek for, for, for someone causing a pattern. So the classic example, I think this is something that's discussed quite a lot in the kind of evolution of religion literature of how you know see faces in the clouds and in the in the posts uh, because it, it to some extent makes sense if there is a rustle in in the bush uh, speaking in evolutionary kind of uh, speculation if there's a rustle mm-hmm. in the bush it's 
better to start assuming, oh, you know, maybe, maybe it's a lion and I'm going to, I'm going to go out, out instead of being like, well, it's probably just the wind, but therefore we end up being oversensitive in, in, in interpreting the wind as, as, as a ghost, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or mm-hmm. interpreting these large economic systems doing what they do as, ah, oh, there must be someone operating this there must be the illuminati behind us of them there must be mm-hmm. someone orchestrating it it cannot as you as you write it cannot be just the cooked timber of humanity to you mm-hmm. to, to use a uh, Kant's term it cannot be just these haphazard forces just going there must be someone in charge yeah randomness is is difficult for human minds to detect in fact we're so bad at it that real randomness actually is kind of uh chunky or clunky or chunky or it has patterns to it Sorry, I said that kind of badly, but just think of the constellations in the sky. You know, it looks like a big dipper, a little dipper, a bear, or a scorpion, yeah. or a fish, or a, a bird. But the stars in the sky are randomly scattered about. Yeah. And that's what randomness looks like. It looks like patterns, right? So I tell the story in the book of the famous, supposedly true story of when Jobs launched the iPod and then added the random feature of shuffle uh, customers complain this is not random because certain songs come up more than other songs <laughs> yeah no actually that's random right if every song played consistently the same number of times as every other song you'd have to program that in you'd have to make that happen so uh, and you know gamblers fallacies are all based on our inability to understand randomness so much of what we think of as conspiracies are actually just randomness you know, never attribute to malice, which can be explained by randomness or incompetence as the conspiracy principle goes. And I think that's right. A lot. Yeah. Of yeah. Never attribute to malice, which can be attributed to, to randomness or inco- incompetence also. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, but you had, do you have some tips? I mean, besides, besides you already mentioned being transparent, but you also talk about, for example, asking people what exactly are you against? Like, you know, okay, so you think that the deep state is right. What exactly is the deep state, for example? Um, trying to make people be more specific or saying that opinion, not saying your opinion, but saying that opinion when you're disagreeing with something, asking people to rate their confidence, saying on a, on a scale from one to 10, how mm. confident are you? Are you about the earth being flat, for example? Um, any other tips that you have? Yeah, well, see there, I'm trying to get people to uh, reason in a more Bayesian way that is put, put a probability number percentage likelihood that X is true and it moves people away from binary thinking, which is usually pretty dangerous. It's true or false. It's black or white. It's this or that. It's almost never like that. And, you know, so saying, you know, I think uh, UAPs represent uh, UFOs or extraterrestrial intelligences. Okay. How confident are you? that it's that and not say a drone or just, you know, a random, uh, you know, flock of birds or something like that. Right. So mm. you get people to think, Oh, I guess it could be that if I don't have to say yes or no, if I can say, yes, I think it's 60% this and 20% that and 20% something else. Okay. And then that, that kind of opens the door for them to say, you know, I could change my mind. Yes. Right? This is the yes. principle of Bayesian reasoning. You know, I, I kind of try to do this with Oliver Stone about the JFK, but the conversation kind of deteriorated too quickly because I, well, I. But I did I, want to ask: do you, What's do you have good experiences about this? Because I think that there's a part of me who thinks that it's it's just even with all of these tips, it's very very difficult. It is to ever convince yeah, someone who's really yes. bought into a conspiracy yes. theory. Too. I've uh, tried that with a couple of Trump people that think the election was rigged, and it never goes well because they're not open to the possibility that it could yeah. be wrong because they're not holding it based on any reason. Or evidence, or you know, if I say what a, you know what are what are your what what's your confidence level? Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, nothing's hundred percent, right? Yeah. You know, death and taxes, hundred yeah. percent. Okay, it's like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So again, they're not, but you know, it's, it's it'd be like if I asked them, you know, are you willing to dump Trump? You know, no, I'm not. Okay. You know. Well, what's your best experience talking with someone and, and having them and, and noticing that? Oh, the lights went on, you know. I I think like to use the analogy with Christian creationists, again, if I, if I tell them you have to give up Jesus in order to accept Darwinian evolution, they're not, they're not going to do that. Right. You know, so it's, you know, a hundred percent 
evolution has to be wrong if you're making me do that. So I just do an end run around it. No, you can you can keep your religious beliefs. You can keep your political beliefs, support Trump all you want. It's just that, you know, here's the evidence for this one little thing here. And so you got to move them away from the kind of deeper foundational beliefs that they hold or define themselves mm. by towards some more specific fact-based thing that you can, you know, kind of present gently, respectfully, you know, contradictory evidence. It doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes in conversations, all you could do is plant a little seed of doubt and just walk yeah. away. And maybe, you know, days later they, they think about it and they quietly and never tell you that, you know, maybe I changed my mind. <laughs> yeah. And one of the, the tips I most liked from your list of tips was let people be wrong. It's not the end of yes, the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, especially with yeah. friends, right? Yeah, you know yeah. what? Uh, I mean, uh, Trump has led apparently to a lot of divorces and loss of friendships and stuff. You know, people are just so uh, committed to it. I, mm. To me, just it's okay. Go ahead, you know, support Trump or hate Trump. I don't know. Whatever. You're still my friend. That's hard to do <laughs> these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially in some days. Um, but then that does also relate to the question: well, What if we are wrong? Mm -hmm. And what if we're making the, the kind of classical type two error in statistics? So, 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 okay, we, we blame these folks for doing a type one error. So, you know, they don't really have evidence, but they're still jumping onto an, a, a, a wild hypothesis. Uh, but there, there's also the risk of doing the type two error. So, so being too conservative, not taking yeah. new information yeah. seriously enough. Um, for example, when I, when I posted a question of if any, any people on, on uh, some of the more conspiratorial sides of the internet have questions for you saying that I'm going to interview you. A lot of the questions that I, well, I mean, there was crap questions, but a lot of the good questions were things like, well, where does health skepticism end and blind trust to the mainstream media begin? Why are we so certain that the elections wasn't, wasn't rigged, for example? There, there is not even a theory, so that's not necessarily the best example, but you know, uh, I feel like actually there's... it's a it's a good example in in this sense because you know you don't know if the election was rigged or not and I don't either because I I don't have the resources to check you know who was counting the votes in Arizona who was the person in Georgia at that particular county in that precinct at that particular voting station right there that guy you know how do I how do I know that he didn't do that well I don't but somebody does right and so if it's somebody on the team that would be motivated to find fraud, said they found nothing, then I'm reasonably confident there's probably nothing to be found, right? So the Republican Trump appointed politicians in Georgia, for example, said we looked into it, nothing there, right? A lot of the judges that threw out the lawsuits that Giuliani filed, they were Trump appointed Republicans. A.G. Barr, Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, you know, who is a Trump appointed, you know, hardcore Trump supporter, supported Trump all the way up till the end, um, you know, lifelong Republican and all. He says, look, I, I have the resources of the Department of Justice. It doesn't get any bigger than <laughs> that. Right. And we looked into it. And as he said, memorably, this is all bullshit. There was no fraud. There was no rigged election. It's over to me. Th that's it. It's over. I, I don't need to worry about this anymore. You know, the guy that mm. would be motivated to find fraud said there is none, then that that's how you know. So in a way, it's not an argument from authority. It's an argument that somebody who who, who is motivated not to believe something says he believes it. Okay. Or vice versa. You know, it's like the quote I, I use in the book from Christopher Hitchens. You know, when the when the Pope says he believes in God today, you think, well, yeah, the Pope's doing his job again today. That's what he's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But if yeah. you hear the Pope saying, you know, I'm having doubts about God's existence, you think, <laughs> whoa, he might be onto something. Because <laughs> he's yeah. supposed to be, you know, believing in God. If he says he doesn't, he must have figured something out here. I, I better pay attention. Yeah, well, what about then leaving the conspiratorial side of things behind and focusing more generally on skepticism. I mean, you're the uh, the founder of the Skeptic Society, right? And the publisher of the Skeptic Magazine. So, so, so I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, how big of a risk do you see in the very practice, the very mindset, the very ideology of skepticism leading into a high amount of these type two errors of um, of throwing out hypotheses that are actually true because you think that there's no answer? There's insufficient data, etc. One example that comes to my mind is mindfulness meditation. When it first mm. came to the West in the 60s, I'm sure that a lot of people of the more skeptical then would have been like, oh, you know, this, this is rubbish. I mean, this is some kind of woo-woo. 
And there's no science backing this up. They did say there that. was no science backing <laughs> it up because nobody had done the science. <laughs> right. And then when you do the science, well, this is this is just fantastic. I mean, now 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 it's on any 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 body concerned with mental health, they will have some something to say about it, and often very positive things to say about it. And the studies are just fascinating. So how how do you balance the risk of of becoming too skeptical? Here, I'll read to you the epigram from my book, uh, Why People Believe Weird Things, from Carl Sagan, from a lecture he gave in Pasadena in 1987 that I attended. It seems to me what is called for is an exquisite balance between two conflicting needs. The most skeptical scrutiny of all hypotheses that are served up to us, and at the same time, a great openness to new ideas. If you're only skeptical, then no new ideas make it through to you. You never learn anything new. You become a crotchety old person convinced that nonsense is ruling the world. And he adds parenthetically, <laughs> there is, of course, much data to support you. <laughs> On the other hand, if you're open to the point of gullibility and have not an ounce of skeptical sense in you, then you cannot distinguish useful ideas from the worthless ones. If all ideas have equal validity, then you are lost because then it seems to me no ideas have any validity at all. Right. So that's the perfect kind of summary of the problem in epistemology. How do we know what's true? What should we believe? So, um, you know, generally when an idea has been around for a while, it's been tested, it's been bandied, debated and, uh, you know, disputed for years or decades. And a general consensus is reached by the people that know the most about it. We can be reasonably certain it's that's probably what they say is true is probably true true with the small t in a Bayesian way, you know, it's 80% true, 90% true. You hear this figure, but you know, 97% of climate scientists say anthropogenic global warming is real. Okay. It's not an argument from authority. It's not a democracy, you know, like let's vote and see how many people think it's true and how many people mm. don't. That's not it. It's that in science, it's a social community that has been debating this and arguing about the data sets and, and so forth for decades. And when they pretty much all say, yeah, it looks like it's really happening. This is human cause. That's it. We can be reasonably certain that they're probably right. Now, it could be we're all wrong. The 97% are wrong and the 3% are right. But, you know, people have looked into the 3%. You know, what are their arguments? You know, how do they account for X, Y, and Z? And they don't. They don't have good arguments. So they say, well, it's the sunspot activity that's causing it. Yeah, well, that's been debunked. Well, it's, you know, this volcanic activity. Nope, that was debunked. It's the eccentricity mm. of the Earth's orbit in this kind of, you know, relativity thing we have in which we go around the, the sun in this peculiar way uh, due to general relativity. No, it's not that or whatever, right? So, and no one's come up. There's no consensus amongst the minority of scientists to what's actually explains the data better than the consensus theory. So, and again, then maybe they're all wrong, but probably not. Yeah. Mm. Or when they, they, when they say, you know, quantum physics is, you know, one of the best sciences ever developed. It's, you know, it's been tested tens of thousands of times. You know, I don't understand quantum physics. I don't do the experiments, but, and again, it's not an argument from authority. Uh, I just trust that if these scientists who know each other and debate each other and go to conferences, with each other, publish in the same journals, and are motivated to find flaws in in other labs' research, and they don't. And I'm thinking, yeah. okay, yeah, it's, it's probably reasonable for me to just accept it. Thanks for reading the quote. That was that was uh, uh, that was really on point. But maybe I would want to push back a little bit still on the possible dangers of skepticism. There is a tendency, not necessarily amongst the best skeptics of the world, but amongst the amongst uh, people who want to uphold a very high scientific rigor and very high um, kind of um, only evidence-based treatments, et cetera, to say, well, if there is no evidence for this treatment, well, it's, it's not scientific. And I guess I will be open to saying, yeah, okay, if there's no evidence, scientific evidence for this treatment working, it's not scientific. But that doesn't mean that it's, it's bad because it's one thing for nobody having ever studied it and it's another thing for it to have studied and you get null results. Mm -hmm. And there is this problem that you have to get a reasonable amount of resources to get a proper double-blind placebo-controlled trial for a new... Uh, my dad, for example, he's a child psychiatrist, and he was bringing this mm. new therapy form from Chicago to Finland. It was called Theraplay, and it is, it is called Theraplay, and it's based on, on the idea of using, using play uh, with parents who have difficulties with their children, teaching them to play with their children and using play mm. as a kind of way to, to, to create this positive 
parent-child interactions. Um, and, you know, these folks were well-trained psychiatrists and, and they brought it in and there's been, they, they got some backlash from, well, this is not, you know, this is not scientifically tested. And it was mm. true for a long time that, well, no, yeah, because they never had the resources to run the proper experiment. They weren't university folks. They weren't researchers. They were just psychiatrists doing their job and wanting to find a good way to to make the kids have a, have a better time with their parents. And I guess that it's a very tricky balance here because, because if people run studies on it and say that, no, 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 you know, it was all never better than any of the alternatives, or it actually was even worse than the alternatives, then I think that it's a very important thing to say, hey, look, we've studied this thing, it doesn't work. But when you just live in this, this early moment of innovation, you just haven't had the capacity to run the studies because you don't happen to be, be associated deeply with universities and you have other things on your agenda, I think there at that kind of early innovation phase of whether it is medical treatments, therapies, teaching methods. You know, when I use the new teaching methods in the classroom, uh, I'm not, I haven't, you know, tested it by scientific means. I just have a feeling like, hey, you know, this could work. So, uh, so yeah, how do you balance that kind of, uh, the, the, that risk of skepticism as a virtue becoming an obstacle to these kind of new ideas taking hold? Hmm. Well, of course it can. We call skepticism virtue for a reason, and that is because most new ideas are not right. You know, there's a survivorship bias in which we uh, recognize and notice the correct ideas and award Nobel prizes to them, the developers, or or they get a patent, or they have a company that you know has an IPO and they become billionaires. You know, you hmm. know. And again, I use that example of you know Steve Jobs as Bill Gates as the model of developing them you know, a very successful tech company, you know, you go to a, a really nice college and you drop out early and move back into your parents' house and start a company in your parents' garage. And, and before you know it, you're a billionaire. <laughs> of course, you know, how many people did that back in the seventies and we yeah. never heard of them, right? They went bust, yeah. Yeah. most of them, right? So, you know, it's the same uh, way of, you know, we, we hear about the successful uh, treatments or the Galileos who stood up against the church, you know, I mean, all these, you know, mm. wacky uh, theories of everything I get all physicists get and scientists or public intellectuals. And, you know, how do I know that this guy in his garage hasn't overturned Einstein? Well, I don't, but, you know, what are the chances of that happening? You know, pretty slim. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it's, you can't test them all. And so science in a way is conservative. It seems dogmatic. It seems flatlandish. You know, you just can't see the sphere land because you're on the flatland. You know, yeah, not really, actually, because scientists know that, you know, in a, in a new stage of a field of study, there's going to be a lot of spitballing of ideas that are, most of them are wrong. You, you know, you're just trying this, you're trying that. Eventually you whittle it down to a few and then maybe two, you know, big bang versus a steady state, whatever. And the big bang eventually wins out after about 20 years of research. And, you know, there's still some big bang skeptics, but not many. And the consensus is, you know, that, that, that was mm -hmm. true. The steady state was not true. Okay. So that kind of works its way out. And, you know, so that it's a virtue in the sense that it's good to be skeptical because most ideas are not, not correct. Now to your examples, these are interesting because, you know, there's personal truths versus, you know, kind of subjective, personal, internal truths versus objective, external truths. So if I say, you know, play therapy works for me and my kid. Well, good. That's good. You know, if you have a better relationship with your child because you play together, then that's good, right? I, what do I care if it's really true or not, or if it works for you or not, right? So that's okay, you know, but in science, we want to say something more than that. Like, you know, it's 80% of parents who have children that are five or under who are in our database and they play with their child one to two hours, five days a week. You have to quantify it in some way, Yeah. yeah. right? And uh, so, but again, the problem with your father convincing his colleagues that this is valuable is, is, is reach, hitting that criteria. So you could do like a natural experiment. It, maybe it's difficult to put people into a randomized controlled trial. You know, okay, you, you can't play with your kid for the next month because we're doing an experiment. <laughs> you know, you can't yeah, ethically yeah. do yeah. that. And, and to, just to no. be clear, it, it, it's not, the idea wasn't just to, to, to support playing as a good idea. It was a very structured form of oh, yes. therapy designed by, right. by psychiatrists. But I get the point. I, I just think that the, the issue here is, I mean, we can use mindfulness meditation also as an example, is that I think that it's one thing to say that there isn't scientific evidence for this thing yet. And another thing to say that we have pretty good scientific evidence that it doesn't work. And I guess that having that distinction be, be very clear would be very helpful for 
having the healthy level of skepticism around things that really don't mm. seem to work, but also being open to new things and really like, like basically I think we overuse the term, there's no scientific evidence for that, for these two very different cases. One, it's a new thing that nobody has even tried studying and once they do, maybe it works versus things that no, we've tried it and it just doesn't work at all. Yeah. Again, I can say, well, meditation works for me. I don't know if it'll work for you or not. Does it work for everybody? That's one thing. But people like Deepak, who's a friend, and I've f followed him for a long time, and I know his research, he really thinks, or he claims, he's, and he has some data on this, that, that it does have measurable effects. Um, it, that is, you can lower your stress levels as, as measured by, you, you do a blood drop, yeah. and you see how much of these stress levels, hormones, stress hormones are in your blood. And you know, if you're under super stress, they go up, and you meditate, they go down. You know, then there's self-report data, you know, my depression, my anxiety, my headaches, sleeplessness, whatever the problem is, and you employ the meditation and you, you quantify it. There's a great book about that too, called Altered Traits by Richie Davidson and Daniel Goleman. I don't, I don't know if you, <clears throat> you've encountered it, but they, they curate yeah. the bit period studies on, uh, on especially mindfulness meditation. Um, hmm. And uh, Richard Davidson, he's a, he's a neuroscientist and he's done some of the pioneering work on this. And, and the results are, are, there's really striking changes. It's not just that you're, you can be a little bit less, less stressed. You can really see this, like first, you know, you've done the, your first eight days, 10 minutes or whatever, you get these mm. kind of results. Okay. We, then we started these folks who've done like a thousand hours and they're like, oh my God, the results are completely different. And then you have yeah. these like monks who've done it for their whole life. <laughs> oh, it's even, it's even greater. Um, right. But I guess the other issue here is that, that um, what, what do you think would be good words to describe this distinction? Like what would be a, like when we encounter something that we should be healthily skeptical to because we don't have scientific evidence for it, but it's also nobody has even tried yet. So we should be rather open in the sense of Carl Sagan saying that, you know, if we just shut off all new ideas, it's not a great thing versus this case of like, no, that's really not backed by science because we did the studies or they did the studies and it doesn't work. Like what would be a good way to distinguish between those two cases? Do you think there should be like, what would be like good words? Yeah, the, I guess kind of go through? I, I guess it's, yeah, it's okay to just speculate wildly in the early stages of a new field or claim. Uh, why not? I mean, we got it. You know, the role of creativity is important in science. Um, but at some point, you got to be able to figure out, well, so now we have 50 different hypotheses. You know, if you look under, the, just look under the Wikipedia page under consciousness, hard problem of consciousness, there's like 27 different theories yeah. to explain yeah. it. Well, to me, it's like, okay, then we really don't know, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and a yeah. couple of these are more popular than others. It's like, okay, well, maybe, but I think we need to do a lot more research. Or maybe there's hmm. a conceptual problem here. We're not constructing the problem in a way that it can actually be tested and we can finally kind of get some, get a toehold on, you know, what's actually going on here and say, that one is probably right. This one's maybe right. And the rest of them are a bunch of nonsense. You know, it, how do you do that? And that's harder. That's hard with a problem like that. It's almost like the free will problem, free will determinism. Mm. What do you mean by these words? And, you know, talk, you can talk to philosophers. I, I have, and they go on for hours about the, you know, the meaning of these words. It's like, Okay, I don't even know what you're talking about at this point, <laughs> right? I, I can't get, I can't sink my teeth into it. Like, you know, that's the relationship between smoking and lung cancer. We quantify this, do this, then measure it and so on. And some causal, you know, these are just so different. And, you know, the hard problem of consciousness, you know, well, what do you mean by consciousness? Well, what it's like to be something. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, how would I measure that? Right. So in science, we got to be able to measure it and test it somehow, or it's not really science. Now, it doesn't make it wrong. It could just be interesting, be metaphysics yeah. or, you know, yeah. I know, philosophy, theology, whatever, but, uh, but it's not science. Well, you have a lot of faith in science, which is a great not virtue. Faith. Not faith, confidence, because it works. Confidence, great. Um, you have a lot of confidence in science, but you don't only have <laughs> confidence in science when it comes to, um, to individual claims but also when it comes to the progress of, of our species in, in your book, Moral Arc. I know, I know, but it's not fate. It's not inevitable. It's not fate. No, I, 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 maybe that was, a, <laughs> that was just a, a, a poor okay. choice of words because I share, yeah, the, really. I share the confidence. Yeah. But I guess what I yeah. want to get at is that there is an obvious way in which science, you know, you doing trials being, I think for me, science often is just, 
being ready to be wrong. Like, how can I test yes. this thing so that I'm ready to be proven wrong? And then we do the tests. And, and that's, and I think that's, a, that's of course a wonderful mindset to take to things. But um, what's the limit of the sphere of human activity where that is appropriate? I think is the question in your book, Moral Art, for example, you, you um, suggested a lot of what we might call moral progress in the past. Mm -hmm. I don't know what exactly would be your, your time span. Would it be the last three hundred years or, or what? Yeah. A lot that of the things good. that have happened, they aren't a product of better philosophy or better literature, et cetera, as much as, as, as a more scientific world. Am I paraphrasing it correctly? That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, again, it's, um, you know, what, what's the problem to be solved? Well, you know, if, if half the world's population is enslaved, you know, that's not good. How do you know it's not good? Ask the people who are enslaved. That's how you know, because they don't want to be enslaved. You know, just ask people, <laughs> you know, what do they prefer? And they prefer what you prefer, what I prefer, you know, freedom and liberty. And I prefer to be fed rather than starving. I prefer to be healthy rather than diseased. I prefer to not be in pain. I prefer to have money than not have money. <laughs> and on and on. Yeah. Everybody feels that way. It comes down to human nature. I start with, you know, just human nature. Who are we? What do we need as, as individuals of the species? And you can build from there. And there's nothing special about me. You know, I apply the Copernican principle to me. You know, I'm not special. And, and therefore, you're not either. Right? You're, there's no reason I should ask you to treat me in some special way if I'm not willing to do the same for you. So it really comes down to something like the golden rule. <laughs> um, yeah. Although you have to ask because maybe maybe you have different tastes than I have. Uh, yes. But in any case, yeah, so it builds from there. So I would just say it's, it's you know, kind of a quantifiable, measure, measurable changes when certain causal vectors are implemented. You know, democracy is better than autocracy. You know, market economies are better than command and control economies. Um, you know, it's better if women have the vote than if they don't. It's better if women are allowed to run companies or countries <laughs> or be scientists or so on than if they're not. And you know, so just expand the moral sphere to include more rights for more people in more places. And that that has measurable effects on society, makes societies better, richer, healthier. Uh, people live longer and there's they're more peaceful. There's less violence and so on. Nothing's perfect. You know, there's always exceptions, but just as a general rule, we can move in that direction. I guess the, the idea of slavery is, is helpful because Aristotle, I don't think he ever asked, but, but he, he thought that, no, 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 that, you know, it's good for the slaves. They, they, they would want to do it. It's, yes, their, it's yeah. their purpose. And of course, this, this context of slavery was very different, but it wasn't necessarily very much more benign than what we what we might. Yeah, think to him, I would say, then okay, if it's so great, you go do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, 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 not me. No, but that's more different. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's a, a, an example where we have a morally dubious proposition, mm -hmm. which is factually incorrect. So mm -hmm. there is a factual claim baked into the moral proposition. You know, the Aristotle scholars will probably come back to me and say that I'm misrepresenting him, but let me misrepresent. The, the, yeah. the misrepresented Aristotle says, you know, the slave wants to be enslaved. That's good for the slave. They will be healthy and happy and everything. Okay, that's a factual claim, completely incorrect. So we need to change the, 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 the moral proposition, the, the moral norm, and, and, and that is a sense of progress. But then are there cases where it's not so straightforward? It's not that it is a factual claim, because science is about facts. So it's not a factual claim that is wrong in a dubious moral proposition, but it is actually the very values of the, that the people have. I mean, I can think of things like um, when you think about uh, torturing and, and executing criminals from petty theft, maybe it was just a factual error. Maybe it was like, no, this is, this is the best way to, to reduce juvenile regitivism. You know, we just killed them. Um, maybe there was some kind of factual claim you could pinpoint and show wrong. But maybe there was something else. Maybe it is that the very values have changed. Does science have any bite into that, into the values on top of which we can put the factual claims, hypotheses, etc.? I think so. Here we're we're kind of getting to consequentialism or utilitarianism versus, you know, kind of rule-based or deontological ethics. So you could make the case, and in fact, antebellum Americans in the South did make the case that life on the plantation was actually better 
for the blacks than it was when they lived in Africa. Yeah, we're giving them civilization. They have a place to sleep. They're secure and safe. And by the way, we were saving their souls by teaching them about Jesus. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So they had that. And uh, but but let's say somebody did make the argument and had a data set going, look, they really are better on the plantation. They live longer. They were healthier. You know, whatever the metric is. Uh, would that then say justify slavery? No, because here you have that kind of deontological or, or kind of rights-based or rule-based principles that underlie or override the consequences or the utilitarian argument. And so you could say a society is better with slaves than without slaves because it has you know, higher per capita GDP or whatever your metric's going to be. I'm just making that up. Uh, that would still, that would not justify it. It would still be wrong because at the base, you know, of it all is how would you like to be a slave, right? As Lincoln famously said, as I would not want to be a slave, I will not be a slave holder. It, mm-hmm. it, that's it. It's as simple as that. It doesn't get any more complex. And, and then you could build from there. So there I would say that the, it doesn't matter what the facts are. You know, if we have these underlying principles that we're not going to violate, right? So this is, you know, what the Bill of Rights is for. You know, the constitutions is, you know, so we're a constitutional republic. We're going to have a vote. And the founders immediately realized through practice, experience, reading the ancients and so on that, you know, a, um, a democracy in which everybody gets a vote and we're going to do whatever, you know, 50.1% want to do, you know, mm-hmm. is a disaster. You know, this is tyranny of the majority. So that's why they devised the system the way it is. It's a constitutional problem. It's not really a democracy in, in, in that kind of general sense. And for good reason. Yeah. So uh, again, I just, just go back to, you know, the basics of human nature. What are people like? What do they need? What do they want? How do they vote with their feet? Where would people rather live? You know, North Korea or South Korea? We know the answer to this question, you know, East Germany or West Germany. Okay. You have, if you have to build a wall to keep your people in, they don't want to be there. <laughs> And if you break the wall down and they leave, guess what? They don't like your system, right? Or to bring it up to current events, you know, and then, you know, 300,000 people have left Russia, you know, young men of fighting age. They don't want to kill Ukrainians. There was a guy on the news last night. They said, why are you leaving? He goes, I don't want to kill Ukrainians and I don't want to die. Really? (laughs) Well, that's a shocker, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's not, again, it's not rocket science. Just ask people, what would you prefer? You know, ask women, would you prefer to be able to vote or not? They'll tell you, right? Now, some of this is a little tricky on the self-report data. You know, like if you ask women in the Middle East, do you like wearing the hijab? Maybe they do. You know, some of them do. Maybe they do it because they have to. As we're seeing in Iran now, most of them probably don't want to. And they're ripping it off at a protest, that death of that woman. But but let me get back to the point about utilitarianism, consequentialism. I think that it's fair to say that there are people who are consequentialists, who are utilitarian. So there's a disagreement there. I think I know what they would say to the slave thing, which is, you know, unnecessary thought experiment. There's no way that these people, that there's a, there's a way of, max, of maximizing happiness by slavery. So we don't need to go into that uh, thought experiment. But but. Given that there is a dis- disagreement about about the, the philosophy, about the values, not about the facts necessarily, but about the values, about what do we do with the data? Do we want to also give these these rights uh, that you beautifully talked about, or do we eventually say at the very end of the day that what matters is only one fact, which is the overall amount of welfare, happiness, well-being, whatever? Then there's a disagreement. Is that a scientific disagreement? Maybe. Or is it a philosophical disagreement? It depends. You know, if you take something like the abortion issue, it has changed over, say, the last century in the direction of uh, the inability to answer the simple question, when does life begin? You know, the traditional pro-life argument begins at conception because that's the most kind of qual- qualitatively different stage in the spectrum of development. Yeah, but, you know, twins, uh, identical twins, uh, who, who gets the soul and who doesn't? Um, or, you know, <laughs> natural abortions. You know, there's more natural abortions, that is nature does it, um, than, than, than artificial abortions. 
So what does that say, you know, about these arguments and, and so on and so forth. The direction has been toward more pro-choice because in a conflicting rights scenario, uh, something has to give. You can't have everything. You know, I'm always quoting Thomas Sowell on this. There are no solutions. They're just compromises. So we've been moving in the direction of toward the rights of the mother in the abortion case. And because it's clear to most rational people that the science shows that there is no place to draw the line. Although Mm -hmm. in a Bayesian kind of way, you can say, well, first trimester, probably don't feel any pain. There's no sentience there at all. It's probably okay. Third trimester, probably not okay. Feel pain, heartbeat there. You know, the cortex is coming online and so forth. Probably not okay. The gray area is in the second trimester. Okay, what week? Maybe week 20, maybe 15, week 20, week 24. You know, you could kind of, you got to draw the line somewhere. And I don't think science can exactly adjudicate that, but it can kind of give us some directionality. And that's what happens with the courts. You know, when Roe was decided in 73, it was based on the science of the day, basically. Mm. And again, at that, you know, well, second trimester is kind of the fuzzy area. Somewhere in the middle of the second trimester, that seems about right. You know, and then again, you're just like, what, why is it okay to drink at the age of 21, but not, you know, 20 and 11 months and, and 29 days? <laughs> you know, well, you just have to draw yeah. the line somewhere. <laughs> science is informing our principles and our legal political decisions. So it's not completely separate, but it's not 100% determined either. The reason I'm asking, as you might guess, is that being trained in, in philosophy and every every philosophy graduate friend of mine will say, oh yeah, but what about the the, the is odd gap? What a, we cannot go from facts to values. We cannot go from how the world is to how the world ought to be Therefore, Sure we can. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's a bunch of bullshit. I, you know, look, uh, the way the world is, is that democracies really are better than autocracies and therefore we ought but to But that's promote- an instrumental value claim. I think you yes, can say that they are better because we have these and these values, maximizing happiness, health, well-being, yes, life expectancy, yes. and they do it all better. But fundamentally, there must be some values which we cannot derive from the ease would be the well, argument. Well, okay. You know, let's just say willy-nilly for no particular reason at all, I'd rather be healthy than than sick. I'd rather be alive mm. than dead. Yes. You know, it's just yes. totally random. It's just my opinion. <laughs> Maybe you feel the same way, you know. Now, how should we structure society? How ought we structure a society yeah, to yeah. implement those, you know, completely random uh, beliefs that we hold, <laughs> right? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, you know, so in other words, it's, how, do, how do you philosophers say that? It's, you know, the, it's thin, right? It's, it's a thin argument. The is-ought thing is pretty thin. You know, so you, you, you can't say, well, slavery is natural in, in, in ants, so we, should, it, it, we ought to do it in humans. No, no, no. I, I agree. That's, <laughs> that doesn't hold. Great. Well, before we end, uh, you did your PhD on... Um... Alfred Russell Wallace. Alfred Russell Wallace, yes. I ended up writing a biography of, of Wallace. It's called In Darwin's Shadow. Right, here it is. And it's he's in his shadow because really Darwin did most of the heavy theoretical lifting. Wallace did a lot of the, the heavy data lifting. Mm. Um, but yeah, so my, my doctorate's in the history of science. Of course, you got to specialize in something. So evolutionary theory, what about it? Well, the difference between Darwin and Wallace and the specifics of their theories and how they differ, yeah. how they're similar. And then I end up writing, uh, you know, biography based on my yeah. dissertation. So uh, I guess it's a fair, uh, fair paraphrasis of your interest to say that you're especially interested in human evolution. Now, yeah. being, having been a, a student of human evolution all these decades, I, I love to ask my guests the question, what kind of animals are we? One thing I would really want to ask from you is when you think about what kind of animals are we, what has changed most in your thinking throughout the decades, reading more, learning more, getting all these people with new books to talk with? I guess um, it would be, of course, the continuity with all of the life forms that Darwin showed us we have, which is enabling, ennobling, and so on but how different we are from all other species, you know, and the more anthropologists and linguists, cognitive scientists, evolutionary theorists I talk to, it's just remarkable how different we are, cognitively speaking. 
you know, language and you, you can, you can stretch it as far as you can possibly stretch it that dolphins have language or chimps or whatever. They just have their, their communications is nothing like ours, not even remotely as sophisticated as ours. And you know why that is, you know, there's different theories about this, but it is right. And so that we evolved to a point where we can figure out quantum physics, where we can fly rockets to Mars and start a new founder population on Mars that'll become different, a different species over long periods of time. Wow. That's just stunning. They were able to do that. And, you know, one argument I make about why we haven't heard from anybody out there is that, you know, you can get all the way up, all the, you know, gazillion steps from uh, bacteria to big brains. You can all get all, get all the way up to the point of, say, Neanderthals uh, or Homo erectus, you know, pretty sophisticated tool using big brain bipedal primates. And still they develop nothing like what we have. Why is that? You know, it's just, you know, of course, we know what creationists will say, you know, God gave us the spark of consciousness or whatever. Uh, but leaving that aside, you know, well, it's hard to say. It's a really hard problem. So, I, you know, I'd say we're a very special species. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Alari, nice to see you. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Thank you. This was great pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode till the very end. If you enjoyed it, please consider thinking of a friend who might like it too. You can either share it with them directly or just mention one day that uh, you heard something they might enjoy. Also consider subscribing to the Onhimans podcast if you have not done so yet. This way you will be notified of future episodes such as one coming up with Dr. Anna Alexandrova, a philosopher of science from Cambridge University, with whom we also explore the limits of science but this time in a very specific context that being the question, what can science tell us about happiness? Thank you as always for listening. Until next time, take care. <laughs>